there was this one lady in the middle of the road just crying besides the dear one that was lying. The body was lying by a palm tree. And boy, she was crying. I saw those people walking back and forth. Like, you know, nobody was paying attention to her. Mm. So I, I left the group with whom I was walking. I came back, took a bottle of water, gave it to her, and, and just wiped her tears. You're listening to an American Red Cross in Greater New York podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Michael DeVolpierre, communications officer with the American Red Cross in Greater New York. In this podcast over the past year, we've been talking about the coronavirus. We've provided tips to help people cope with the emotional toll that the pandemic is having. We've discussed how our disaster relief work has been forced to adapt. And we've looked at how COVID-19 has affected the military communities we serve every single day. In this final episode of our second season, we'll discuss the international work of the American Red Cross, specifically how one man's long and accomplished Red Cross career led him to a unique role supporting vulnerable communities dealing with the pandemic. You'll be hearing parts of my conversation with Dr. Joseph Pruitt Diaz, a disaster mental health specialist with the American Red Cross. Originally from Puerto Rico, Dr. Joe, as he is known, is a highly accredited educational psychologist with degrees from the University of Puerto Rico, the University of Connecticut, and the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland. Dr. Joe is a pioneer in the field of disaster mental health. In his time with the American Red Cross, he supported an astounding 52 domestic deployments. Internationally, he's worked in 17 countries in the Americas and the Caribbean, as well as 12 countries in the Asia-Pacific region. Here, he talks about how he was essentially born into the Red Cross. I was wondering, just to start off, what are some of the experiences in your life and in your career that brought you to the Red Cross? Well, first of all, being born, I was born in a Red Cross hospital. My mother was the Red Cross nurse at a military installation. And so that brought me right into the Second World War and the beginning of the Korean conflict with a mother that was in charge of uh, doing notifications for uh, soldiers that were injured in a war and, and caring for, uh, for the families until their bodies came and they, they were put to rest. So at a very early age, about six, seven years old, I knew when the hearse was coming and I could run down the down from the street to the neighborhood where my mom would be with the family to let her know that the, the hearse was already done on its way, wow. et cetera, et cetera. So that was, that was my, my early start. My first yeah. Red Cross card was, uh, uh, was issued in Perigueux, France, where my mother was deployed and we were caring for survivors of the Second World War that had long-lasting effects of that war wow. and uh, American Red Cross had a project there and so at that age I became a member in 1953 but really uh, I didn't I didn't visualize I I didn't take Red Cross seriously I was doing things but it it didn't come to my awareness until I came to the United States mm-hmm. in, in 1972 and uh, the, the the greater Hartford chapter was looking for somebody that would translate for them. And so I 
I was teaching at the University of Hartford at the time, so I volunteered to translate. And and finally, in 1975, I I, I switched completely to doing a lot of full-time volunteer work within okay. the Puerto Rican community in Hartford. In this next excerpt, we're going to fast forward to the 1990s, when Dr. Joe transitioned to the emerging field of disaster mental health, which was a perfect mix of his background in psychology and his extensive experience with the Red Cross. Here, he shares how a deployment to Florida after Hurricane Andrew in 1992 and work in Latin America after Hurricane Mitch a few years later set in motion a new career, providing emotional support and community resiliency all over the world. And in 1992, per chance, some guy invited me to take some courses in Johnstown Red Cross. Uh, the, guy, the guy asked me, what did I do? And I said, I'm a psychologist. He says, we, we have developed a unit of mental health workers in the American Red Cross. And they were waiting to send a first group of disaster mental health workers to a disaster response. And it just so happened that uh, Hurricane Andrew occurred in Florida, and uh, I was able to be there uh, as a Spanish speaker uh, and within the the disaster mental health function. I wound up remaining there for 93 days. Wow. So your first deployment as a disaster mental health volunteer was Hurricane Andrew in 1992? Mm-hmm. Then, so at what point did you transition to international services and international deployments? What was your first international deployment? My first international deployment was a uh, mudslide in Nicaragua as a result of uh, Hurricane Mitch. Another person from the, from the Spanish Red Cross and I were sent here. There's 2,000 people. There's mm-hmm. probably five, 6,000 uh, people living in tents. Everything was disorganized. And uh, the, the U.S. government had asked the American Red Cross to set up a, uh, an, aid, an aid camp, yeah. set up a way to help these people. So, so that was my very first experience. For four years, I remained in Central America working wow. with working Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and, uh, and Honduras uh, with, uh, with, the Mitch, with, uh, with the Mitch response. So uh, we, we ended up with a great program called the Central American Mitigation Initiative, uh-huh. which was the very first psychosocial program uh, developed by the American Red Cross. So just to, just to take a quick step back, we, we, within the Red Cross, International uh, American Red Cross, we use different terms. We use disaster mental health, we use psychosocial, we use psychological first aid. Is there a way to make the, some, some distinction for our listeners there? Uh, when we began to work the Central American Mitigation Initiative, then we looked at social and psychological activities and needs that people were expressing. Sure. Some of their some of their needs were existential: need for food, water, uh, shelter, work, uh, relationships, etc. Mm-hmm. But there were some that that had serious uh, serious challenges in terms of their of they had uh, 
suffered the loss of, of families and friends. They had physical and emotional pains. They had uh, social margin. They feel they felt socially marginalized. Uh, mm -hmm. Their their social life had changed, and yeah. so that that combined with the fear of what am I what is going to happen to me next generated some psychological sequelae. Fear brought traumatic experiences. Fear plus traumatic experiences brought about traumatic stress that mm -hmm. needed to be addressed through psychological first aid. Okay. And so psychological first aid is a first order intervention. It's exactly the same, both in, in international and in domestic. Mm -hmm. It's a first order intervention that uh, provides for uh, establishing contact with the client, listening mm -hmm. to what that client needs, providing for basic needs, providing for referrals, and doing follow-up. So okay. it's, that's the gist of both programs, either in, in, in domestic as in international services. Okay. So your work for those four years in, in Central America, those, that was, um, was that recovery work related to the hurricane, or was that you know, long-term program partnership work on no, the no, ground? No, that no, was, that, was, that was recovery. And uh, as I mentioned, the the, the uh, Central America Mitigation Initiative was a 1.3 million grant from the U.S. government okay. uh, to develop to develop a program with communities akin the physical development that was taking place as a result of, of Hurricane Beach. So okay. there were there were housing projects going on, water and sanitation projects. Uh, road building, etc. And on my side, uh, we were able to identify some communities uh, in Guatemala, in, in, the, in Guatemala, which dovetailed the water and sanitation programs. So those people were survivors of the of the early massacres of, of native people. So there there were certain levels of of traumatic experience that was in existence with them. Uh, so we work with the with the uh, elders, with the females, with other people that were uh, injured, and with children. And so we did the same thing in El Salvador, and then the Gulf of Fonseca, and in the Atlantic side in Nicaragua. Wow. And it thinks activities were not what you would think of typical mental health activities in the United States, for example. So people would come up with things like, oh, we would like to have a baseball team. Mm -hmm. That's a real big thing in Nicaragua. So yeah. our intervention at that point was to provide the uniforms for two teams and the balls and the bats and so on. And lo and behold, it became a major intervention which provided access to the total community for activities outside of being constantly uh, uh, worrying about about the survival from the hurricane. Uh -huh. uh, in in Honduras, we had we had women doing handicrafts, mm -hmm. uh, and and so they they developed in about seven or eight villages uh, handicaps that they would go and sell 
in the market on Sundays. And, and that provided for food for them and for their family. Uh, other activities included regular counseling sessions, of course, uh, but it provided for young high school students to provide to to help younger kids in poverty areas to talk about their feelings. Mm -hmm. So so it was reaching the community, reaching out to other members of the community, sharing your feelings and and just doing things that would help you feel, feel good about yourself. So uh, the the whole objective at the point was close relationship yeah. between between the families that survived the neighborhoods and the communities, and then having people develop friendships with others and develop pro-social skills and uh, develop a positive view of themselves. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was all we did. From Latin America, Dr. Joe's international work with the American Red Cross took him halfway around the world to South Asia. Following a catastrophic earthquake in Gujarat, India in 2001, Dr. Joe represented the American Red Cross there as a psychosocial delegate. The earthquake killed more than 30,000 people and destroyed so much of the physical infrastructure in the region's Kuj district. For four years, he and his team worked tirelessly to support communities coping with this tragedy as part of an international Red Cross and Red Crescent response. Over those four years, he helped develop a unique psychosocial program, adapting much of what he learned during his time in Latin America. To this day, the Indian Red Cross continues to utilize Dr. Joe's work. He was working in India in late 2004 when a catastrophic tsunami devastated far-reaching coastal regions from Indonesia to the east coast of Africa. And Dr. Joe quickly transitioned to support the global response to this unimaginable event. As the global psychosocial support delegate with the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, his work focused on India, Indonesia, the Maldives, and Sri Lanka. Working this recovery effort from 2004 to 2008, Dr. Joe has given years of his life to support the emotional needs of those impacted by the tsunami. In this next excerpt, he shares an incredibly heart-wrenching yet touching story from his time in Sri Lanka. When we got to to uh, to Tamil Nadu at that time, we, we went to a place called Nagapatnam, mm -hmm. and there was uh, there was this. Everybody was crying. It, it, it was bad. It was it was really a lot of bodies all over mm -hmm. else and sounds. And there was this one lady in the middle of the road, just crying beside the dear one that was lying. The body was lying by a palm tree. And boy, she was crying. I saw those people walking back and forth. Like, you know, nobody was paying attention to her. Mm. So I I left the group with whom I was walking. I came back, took a bottle of water, gave it to her, and, and just wiped her tears. Oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. And stayed with her for a little bit. And, and then, of course, they called me, so I went on. And uh, I managed to get some local people to to care for 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 this woman and, and, and her need to bury her dear one. So uh, we went to a meeting with all the, you know, all the visitors and, and so on. And so this uh, gentleman is speaking in, in his language in Tamil. And uh, so, you know, he, he called me up and 
shook my hand and put his hands around me. I, you know, I didn't know what was going on. So uh, he said something and everybody applauded. And, that. And, and so I'm walking back with my local assistant. I said, what, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. He, said, he said that uh, what the man was saying was that um, he had seen what I had done and that when, when he saw that, he realized that the hands that, talk, that touch your cheeks are more important than the hands that are lifted up in prayer. Today, the focus of Dr. Joe's resiliency work is back in Latin America, where the American Red Cross maintains multiple humanitarian programs that support and empower local Red Cross national societies. Since the onset of the pandemic, Dr. Joe has utilized his extensive academic and field experience to develop mental health and psychosocial guidelines for vulnerable communities coping with the coronavirus in Latin America. In fact, earlier this year, he had the honor to serve as technical advisor to the special representative of the IFRC Secretary General for COVID-19. In this next excerpt, Dr. Joe talks about his recent work in Latin America and the pandemic's impact there. Our major uh, focus these days is migration south from Venezuela on down and migration up from uh, Nicaragua up to, uh, well, no, not Nicaragua. Nicaragua goes on to Panama and then the Central, the, the, the Central American Triangle uh, moved to the United States. So a lot of the, a lot of the, programming that we do is supporting those efforts. So what do some of those programs look like, and particularly those that you're involved in? Uh, The ones that I'm basically involved in are all in the psychosocial side. So um, there's two things that I that I do from the psychosocial side. I have a I have a webinar every Friday. on community-based psychological support that that uh, we we project through uh, Red Cross Radio, and we project through YouTube mm-hmm. and Live, and that has an average of 600 views uh, a, a week. And then, uh, as the time goes on, people are able to see we we get. Uh, we get on the average about two, 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 thousand to two hundred, two thousand to two thousand five hundred views uh, during the during the week uh-huh. of those programs. So that's something that I'm directly involved with. Three other young people that are helping me doing that. And so the, do- the, these these webinars, these these YouTube programs, these radio programs provide resources for you know psychosocial resources. What can you kind of well, we, paint a we, picture to be what these webinars sure. sound and look like? Sure, uh, we talk about uh, what what is the social ecology of disaster. We talk about resilience not being individual but being collective. And so therefore, there are some tools that are community-based. So we talk about the tools of community-based and how we organize ourselves as a community. People have homework, they send it in via email. We read it and we provide feedback to them live. Uh, and then from there, we, we continue to talk about uh, 
what are some of the human capitals that they have and mm -hmm. how can they use their human capital to influence the Red Cross to, to provide them assistance and provide them resources. Um, and then we, we focus a lot on, on what resilience is about because this, uh, the whole pandemic has really hit us quite hard. And yeah. so the, the, the whole issue of, of um, the COVID-19 has uh, really had an impact on the societal process. Yeah. And so, so you know the the quarantining, the the distancing, the mask, and and have created alternate ways of of doing the community, which increase the fear. The fear, in, the fear increases the traumatic stress and and increases the depression. Mm -hmm. So we attempt in as, as much as we can to. Uh, to, con to, to conduct programs and, and make talks around uh, being positive emotionally about uh, the ability to reframe all the adverse experiences that you have had with COVID-19. What are they gonna look once there's no COVID-19? Mm -hmm. uh, we help people talk about spirituality and what spirituality they bring. And, and we have a whole section on uh, native population that are very in tune with their spiritual traditions and how they go about it. And then uh, the ability to make meaning of this traumatic event. And uh, we have a whole section about uh, some of the elder people writing or dictating stories about what they have lived through this year mm -hmm. to be given to their grandchildren 100 years from now. So, so that's the large part of the psychosocial side. You touched on this already, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more again. So COVID-19 has had such an impact on the communities we served, hardest on the most vulnerable. So looking at the communities you've worked with in Latin America, can you talk about what this impact is, looks like and what concerns you the most? Well, the the impact of COVID-19 has been traumatic all over the world. Now, imagine if we are a developed country and we have been so affected by COVID-19. Think about the poor neighborhoods in, in Brazil or the poor neighborhoods in Colombia or those that are living with political strife in Venezuela uh, Indians in Lima, uh, lack of lack of government services of Ecuador, the the impact on the population as a whole in Latin America has been traumatic. Uh, as we move along, uh, we're going to be able to come out of this. We are. Mm -hmm. uh, we're almost there. But we just think that we're not going to be able to come out of, of this. Mm -hmm. And as, as we move along, we, we, we're going to, uh, we have lost our sense of place. We will recover that. We will, we will recover our, our cultural and social and natural and human capitals. But what we will not 
get uh, what we will not be able to do uh, is to uh, put away the fear that COVID-19 has created mm -hmm. for most of the people in Latin America. And so imagine uh, one of the one of the immediate suggestions was quarantining. Everything is has been closed up. Mm -hmm. But yet most people live in one bedroom house. Some people have one of the one of the adults in those houses who who uses alcohol and abuses or the treatment of the of the other members of the community is not the most positive. And so government are telling the people that they have to live with an abuser in their home. Mm. One. Two, that the system, once the system closed down, the quarantine began and people were afraid of getting sick, then women who, who are the the day workers in most large Latin American cities were not able to go to work mm -hmm. because they were not able to go to work. They were not able to provide the basic needs of their little community. And then you have two generations at least of young people, one who, who has began to, to live out of the television and the and the smartphone and so on, and other smallers who really don't know why it is that they have quarantine, why it is that they cannot go away, uh, why it is that they have to wear a mask. Something horrible is happening out there, except that I can't see what is happening out there. Mm -hmm. And because I can't see what is happening out there, I don't have the wherewithal to fight it, I am scared all the time. And how do I recover from this? How do I develop that sense of resilience? Yeah. So so that is something that we're going to to have to address. Yeah. One, two, that uh, we we're going to have to address the young people who were Red Cross volunteers and who were in emergency crews and like in Ecuador, they, they had to pick up bodies from the street mm -hmm. uh, mandated by the government. That was something that those volunteers were not prepared to do. And so yeah. they're gonna have those issues, those mental health issues to address um, as they move on. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Joe. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your time with the Red Cross? The one thing that I want to emphasize is that the American Red Cross has been there during the war. The American Red Cross was there when Sully crashed or, or landed his airplane in the in the river in New York. The American Red Cross is there at three o'clock in the morning with the with the firemen mm -hmm. attending people that are in need. The American Red Cross is at the airport welcoming our heroes back and you know, if I had to do it again, I I can't think of a better organization to be affiliated with than the American Red Cross. Once again, huge thank you to Dr. Joe for taking the time to talk to us. 
This is the last episode of our current season, but I want to encourage all of you to tune into our third season that will be launching in August. Each episode will take a deep dive into some of the disasters that have impacted our country and our city over these last 20 years. Thank you all for listening. Let's continue to look out for one another. This episode was edited by Mackenzie Lynch and produced by me, Michael DeVolpierre.